0: Well this is um a real treat for me to be here because although I get down here frequently can you guys hear me in the back if if I start to fade away make noises or something although I get down here relatively frequently for a variety of of functions I this is the first time I've been here on a Sunday morning and uh I'm really pleased to be able to be here with you um, when Gil asked me if I would be willing to to uh, come down and and talk to you guys so that he could uh, have a little bit of time off with his family, it took me about oh maybe five seconds to, to uh, realize that what I wanted to talk about was, was the refuges. Um, because the refuges are a fairly noticeable part of uh, the ritual that we, that we find in our practice, in our centers, in our groups, but we often gloss over them. We just sort of run by them uh, without thinking a lot about about them, and so I thought I would just uh, um, share some of my own contemplations about them and see whether you know to what extent that might be helpful to you. you know the concept of a refuge is interesting. My wife and I used to go on, when we would take a vacation we could manage a vacation you know you know what it's like've got two professional careers going, and maybe you can coordinate a couple of weeks a year. We went to Hawaii every year for years. And we almost always found ourselves on Molokai because there was almost nothing to do there, at least tourist-oriented. And every year we would think, well, we could go someplace exciting. We could go to Europe or Asia or New York. Well, not Los Angeles. Um, but the idea... Each time we thought of that, it was like, well, if we have to go off and do things and plan things and go look at that, we basically wanted to go someplace to just shut down, to get away from the phones and the you know, the crowded, the packed calendars and schedules and all the people wanting this and that and the busyness, the busyness, the busyness. You know, it was a refuge. It was just, it, it didn't change anything here. <laughs> But we were able to get away, and we did it year after year after year. One of the things that's interesting, on the Big Island, there's a place called the City of Refuge. And, you know, even though Hawaii is just beautiful, it's wonderful, the people who lived there before uh, the Europeans showed up seemed to be somewhat more brutal than I would have expected. They didn't have a real graduated scale of punishment, so that if you stepped on the shadow of the king... Well, I was the death penalty. <laughs> um, I just went straight to the, to the easiest thing. Unless you could get to the city of refuge. And, and there were people who lived in this place on the Big Island, uh, on the coast. And if you could make it to the city of refuge, you were safe. The refuge was a place of safety. So the concept of a refuge, you know, the refuges come up and we sort of, we take them. We look to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha for refuge sort of a different approach to this than we usually take towards the problems in our life which is let's fix them you know let's you know get another job another apartment get another roster of election, elected officials let's you know more salt on our food less salt more carbs less carbs i mean you know we're going to fix it one way or another we're going to change change things but the refuge you know in a storm you don't know, can't, pretty much can't change the storm. Basically, you look for shelter, for refuge. And so, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, Is there any water around here
1: somewhere? Just
0: um, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are are the refuges for those of us who are practic- practicing on the path of the. Uh, thank you. On the path of the Buddha. Um, so I thought I would go through the the. Uh, The three of them, and just think a little bit about what they mean uh, and what they might mean, and perhaps you'll have some ideas of your own. To look to the Buddha for refuge. What does this mean? You know, each of us has an idea of who the Buddha was or is, what the Buddha is. Each of us have an idea, and you know, probably there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarity. You know, when I think of who the Buddha is or how I think of the Buddha, the first thing, just the first thing, is that this was a, a person. So was a human person, not a god, not some... You know, this was someone who was like us. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's very important to me because um, the Buddha as a refuge is a... An inspiration for our practice. It's the idea that a person could do or become what the Buddha did or became. What kinds of things are those? You know, when the the, uh, the Buddha described himself in a lot of ways, and he's been described in a lot of ways after his enlightenment. The first person who encountered him was apparently so struck. By his demeanor, his presentation, you know, he was, Who are you? What are you? And the Buddha's response was, I'm awake. What does that mean for us? You know, for each of us, it may mean a little bit different something depending on our understanding. Um, he's someone who has overcome greed, hatred, and delusion. Someone who has, uh, you know, who's, who's, mastered the, the paramis, the perfections of, you know, from generosity and patience and truthfulness to equanimity, the, the perfections of of being human. I like to think that he's someone who was no longer a slave to the desires that arose, to the extent that they arose within him. Not, no compulsion to act out or repress those things that might arise, free from from the compulsion of the desires. And some of this stuff, you know, when you think about it, you think it's a pretty tall order. Um, but the Buddha said, it's possible. It's possible for us as it is for him. He was just a person. You know, and he would, he would say, it's, if it weren't possible to reach freedom, liberation, to achieve this, I wouldn't ask you to do it. But because it is, I urge you to make an effort. Sometimes I think about you know, whether, whether you'd have to be a mendicant to be a fully awakened being. I mean, if you were a fully awakened being, would you find yourself working as a, uh, a resource analyst for the Department of Water Resources in Sacramento? I don't, I don't know. You know. Um, is it necessary to... Well, you know, for those of us who are still attached to our furniture... <laughs> Um, you know, does it mean having to give up all that stuff? Now, how does it mean we hold that? I seem to recall Reginald Ray, who was the, um, or is or was the uh, head of the Naropa Institute in Boulder, uh, commenting that if you took some of these, you know, very practiced masters who've been living in caves in Asia for years and who have as many different words for emptiness as Eskimos have for snow. Um, Bring them over here. Uh, Give them a wife and a couple kids, a job, a car, mortgage, you know, and the March 2nd ballot. (laughs) And you know how how are they going to do? I'm not entirely sure whether you have to be a mendicant, but it's certainly a model, you know, the, the the model that the monks and the monastics set are a model and an inspiration for us. So the 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 refuge in the of the Buddha is just the relief of knowing that there is the possibility of of freedom, of liberation from from samsara, from the the torments of our desires, from the ongoing craving that, that the cravings that are endless. Desires are endless that there is, that there is a, a relief in that. Imagine what it would be like to not think that it would be possible to find relief. You know, my wife has um, had a uh, chronic illness for some years and takes part in support groups and things for people who share her condition. And one of the things that she finds just stunning is how hard, how much harder it is for people who don't have the Dharma in their lives just you know, whipsawed between hope and despair, to not just be able to see that the tide's coming in and the tide's coming out. The Dharma is a refuge. The Dharma is the second of the of the two refuges, and the Dharma is kind of interesting. Dharma is often just referred to as as the teachings of the Buddha. And you know, we take refuge in the the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. The teachings of the Buddha are not, you know the are um, his his map of the territory his description of how things are it's not a catechism that you have to accept it's just a description of you know our experience and how our our lives are and it also includes a set of instructions thank god (laughs) Um, you know we need we sort of need to hear this over and over again because you know in my own experience Anicca, dukkha, and anatta impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self they're not always comforting, you know. Um, but you know, you hear them over and over again, and you get the idea. Uh, uns- the unsatisfactoriness of our experience if satisfaction is an issue for you, our experience is going to be unsatisfactory. First noble truth. You know, the, the, the four noble truths are sometimes taken as beginner's dharma, but really. Ayakema used to say, everything besides everything after the Four Noble Truths is excess Dharma. Really, you get it's it's all there in the Four Noble Truths, in the in the just recognizing the unsatisfactoriness of experience if satisfaction is an issue. We sorta don't want to hear it. But we can get reminded of it. And of course the notion that that the that the cause of that unsatisfactoriness is our desire for things to be different than they are, for things to be different. But the third noble truth, that relief is possible, that there is a cessation that's possible. Again, what a relief. And of course, there's the Eightfold Path, which is the set of instructions. So I like to think that the Dharma is not just you know, the teachings of the Buddha. It's not just that Shelf full of the Pali Canon. It's, it's, it's not just, you know, or the Poly Canon, but but now it's li- <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's libraries full of of books and writings and Dharma books of one form or another. And it's not just that stuff on the shelves. The Dharma. The Dharma appears in practice. It manifests in our practice. In the understanding. You know, in the Eightfold Path and the understanding of the realities of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. That can be very liberating. It can be very freeing. We had a, um, a death in our sangha recently. And we had a ceremony and lots of remembrances. And a lot of people talked about how hard it was not to be attached and how difficult it was and at a certain point in the conversation what surfaced was you know our lives are impermanent and it's not so much a struggling to against attachment fighting that attachment or trying to you know somehow be indifferent to the to the to the sadness but to just recognize the impermanence which just Knowing that it's impermanent going in was was a relief for us and to know that we're all impermanent and to be able to look at each other to see that. Just that understanding is freeing. Because you can struggle, you know. I, I should be I, I should be um unattached, I'm too attached, I'm less attached, you know. But just to recognize so just the the understanding, the right understanding is is liberating. And of course, the practice itself, the, the, uh, the elements of the path, right, right speech, action, and livelihood, the restraint on our behavior is liberating as well. Because the tendency for us to want to fix things and to you know, act out on our desires for things to be different and to make things the way we think, we all think things would be better if we were... If, if we were running the show, right? I mean, we, we all sort of know how it ought to be, and if we were just in charge, <clears throat> and acting out on those desires, boy, you know, it, it doesn't—it doesn't usually. I—I uh, I, I like, I like to think of myself fondly as a slow learner. <laughs> you know, I'm s- still doing it. Doesn't matter how many years I've heard that, but practicing, you—you you know. Finding refuge in the precepts. What a relief <clears throat> to just write off certain kinds of behavior. Just, okay, just write it off. What a relief to not struggle with it. You know? Not struggle with how to behave. I mean, the idea is to to maintain a... Is it two social sciences to say behavior set? <laughs> I've got a social sciences background. Maintain a behavior set that, that doesn't add to the suffering of the world. It's, it's, a, it's a relief. It's a refuge to find the precepts and to at least have some guidance as to how to, how to not botch things up. That doesn't mean that you're going to go, wow, here we go again. But no. to know that it's there. And of course, our meditation practice, which is also, which is also a refuge. I mean, sitting is wonderful sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, when you when you actually land on your breath, you know that you go, Wow, it's still there. <laughs> so the, the practice of, of the Dharma is what manifests the Dharma. So refuge in the Dharma is refuge in our practice. Hearing hearing the Dharma again and again and having our understanding grow. And then managing our behavior and our meditation practice within, within the, the uh, range of our understanding. So we find refuge in the Buddha in knowing that, that liberation is possible, knowing that, that it's possible to be free from the cravings because the Buddha said, and he was like us. And to have his map, you know, as uncomfortable as the map may, may be at times. And the, and the instruction sheet find refuge in our practice, and then refuge in the sangha. You know, the sangha is, is interesting. There's a there's a, a little place in in uh, the Sutta Nipata where the, you know the Ananda turns to the Buddha. I, I sort of imagine that they're sort of sitting there. Okay, I've conjured up a big vision, but you know, they're sort of sitting there and they're looking out over the, the hundreds or thousands of monks amassed, and you know, Ananda says to the Buddha. Actually, I'm not quite sure how he addressed him. Probably didn't. He probably said, "No, this isn't bad. This community life, this sangha, this has got to be half the holy life." And the Buddha is reported to have said, "Well, don't say so, Ananda. It's not half the holy life. It's all of the holy life." And that's usually what's. That's usually as much as gets reported. You know, it's usually. In fact, you see it in quotes. It's You know, Sangha is uh, all of the holy life. The Buddha went on. I mean, he didn't stop there. He said, the reason that it's all of the holy life is because it's in the Sangha that we find the support for the practice of the Eightfold Path. So it's not just, you know, fellowship. It's not just hanging out together and being buddies with other people who own copies of the Majjhima Nikaya, or at least have a copy of Gil's book. It's the it's the venue in which awakening occurs. You know, it's in, it's in the sangha that we that we hear about the Buddha and the Dharma. You know, there are lots of there are a lot of different definitions of sangha. You know, if you there's a, a retreat that I go on every every uh, summer up at uh, Vajrapani, which is a, a Tibetan monastery up in the uh, Santa Cruz Mountains. And when you walk by the you know the the food um, there's a little sign that's at the front that says, out of, out of courtesy we serve Sangha first. And, you know, in this sense, Sangha refers to the people in robes, the people, the monastics. And there's a tradition in, uh, in Buddhism that Sangha means the monastics. And, you know, you'll run into some people who say, well, if you're not a... It's, it's the monks and the nuns. That's who Sangha is. And then the rest of us sort of are what, Sangha wannabes? Uh, you know. And then there's, then there's people who will say, well, no, you know, the definition that you like about Sangha depends on all kinds of things, that, you know, statements you want to say about practice and statements about who you are and all that kind of stuff. There's people who say, well, you know, if you're really committed and you're practicing the five precepts or maybe even eight of them and, and uh, um, you've got a regular practice every day and, and uh, you know, you're committed to, you know, periodic retreat. Well, then you're then you're sangha. You know. Or, or maybe, maybe some people want to say, well, you know, sangha is, um, you know, I, I meditate uh, some, and I, I, you know, come to our gathering once a week, and I hang out with people, and we talk about. Uh, or, or maybe it's someone who read a book, you know, and, and thinks, yeah, I sort, I sort of go along with it. Maybe I'm sangha, you know. I'm, or if you're up in Alaska in a cabin and all you've got is I don't know, the polycanon. Have you got a... Uh, I mean, is there sangha there? <clears throat> so maybe I have a little bit too much social science in my background. But I, I sort of think of uh, sangha as the culture of awakening. You know, it's the culture that supports our our awakening. So it includes not just... Us here—it's not just the people who are here. Sometimes the word sangha—you know—when when people quibble over who is sangha or what is sangha, they're talking about which people do we count, who's in and who's out. But you know, if you, well, the culture—if if I see it as culture, it's not just who is and who isn't, because sometimes the who can be doing things that aren't so supportive. And it also includes, uh, you know. The rituals, the traditions. It includes the it includes the books, it includes the artwork and the artifacts, the things that remind us just of of awakening that awakening is possible. Um, you know the Dharma talks, the oral tradition, the culture of awakening, and then we get away from issues um, like you know, is engaged Buddhism about Buddhists who are engaged, or is it about Buddhism? That's you know, I mean, you know, who do we count as as what? But it's a, the culture of awakening. So for us, you know, it's it's each other. I mean, we're supporting each other. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard to realize how how much that support counts. You know, I I have been leading half day sittings in Davis for years. And most of the time we've got, it's a, Davis has a small song. This is wonderful, large room with, with a lot of people. Um, yesterday we had, there were half a dozen of us that were sitting for a half day. And over the years, you know, sometimes we have more, sometimes we have less. There have been a couple of times, um, when I would show up and I would be the only person there. Boy, is it hard to sit for the whole time. Sit and walk and sit, and then it comes time for the Dharma talk. <laughs> That's usually, you know, I chuckle to myself. <laughs> I, I actually should have given one one time because that would be a great story, but I never have. I, usually at that point I say, well, you know, okay. Thank you. But one other person, one other person, and it's easy. You know? One other person, and we sit there for the, even if, Even if we agree that neither one of us wants to hear me rattle on for 10 or 15 minutes. Um just one other person, and so we support each other. So the refuge here, you know, is refuge in those who support our practice, those who support my practice. What a, what a refuge, because without each other, without the culture that we've got, look at the culture of a Sunday morning, where we get together and we can listen to some uh, talk about the Dharma, we can plan some things together, we can enjoy each other personally. We can also cultivate our understanding of awakening, support our our practice so the refuge the, the refuges, the refuge in the Buddha in the Dharma and the sangha are the, are the refuge in the knowledge that liberation that freedom is po- is a possibility for us it's not just for some somebody off in a cave somewhere or someone in the past. It's a possibility for us. It's a refuge in our practice. In the practice that grows. I mean it's not the same practice we've got now that we had before. You know, it's a practice. It's like practicing the piano. It's not like you sit down, you know um, I always think of that, that joke about the guy who says, Doctor, after the surgery, can I will I be able to play the piano? And he says Sure, it's great, because I can't now, you know. Um, it's, it's something that, that, you know, we cultivate over time. Our practice grows. And there's refuge in the practice. There's relief in our practice, in our understanding, in the, in the, the precepts that we practice to the extent that we practice them, and in our, in our meditation practice, in our meta practice. And refuge in everyone who supports our practice and in everything that supports our practice. now taking, taking refuge or looking to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha for refuge is one of the, is one of the rituals that, you know, we've, we've done this before. We do it before, and we've done it before, and we'll do it again. And in an interesting way, it's like, you know, it's not like you take refuge once, and then it's done. It's like finding your breath once and saying, oh, I found it and then figuring you that's that's it it's the practice of of coming back to it and revisiting the refuges in the same way that we reattend to our to our breath is the practice there is is the coming back part over and over again so it's the the reestablishing our connection with our tradition with our 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 practice with our tradition now Affirming the refuges, recognizing the refuges is is a way of um, stepping onto the the path of the Buddha. but we come back to it over and over again. Joseph Goldstein says being mindful isn 't hard remembering to be mindful is hard <laughs> it 's taking refuge isn 't hard it 's remembering that it 's there, and so we do this as a as a uh, ritual, a repetitive thing may be one of the, the most common of the the rituals that we take you know, i 'm not sure there 's anything else that 's more more common than <clears throat> than taking refuge. so what I would like to do is to um, end here with a with an opportunity for us to to chant the refuges in pali. Many of you know these and, and can chant along and and for those of you who who are not familiar with the, the Pali uh, form of the refuges. Now just to listen to how this is done and what it sounds like, what this is you know, this is probably the most common Pali chant. It's to reaffirm that we're looking to the Buddha for refuge, we're looking to the Dharma and to the Sangha. So we'll start with the with the Namo Tasa and we'll go through the, the <coughs> refuges and just for those of you who are familiar, please feel free to
1: join. No? <coughs> <coughs> namo tasa bhagavato arhato sama sambhudasa. namo tasa bhagavato arhato sama sambhudasa. Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arhato Sama Sambudasa Udam Saranam Gachami Dhamam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami DuMP Buddhadha sarnam ga chami Sangam sarnam Gachami chami Sangam sarnam Gachami chami HaMP Buddhadha sarnam Thank you
0: very much. My only instruction is that no matter what I say or how far afield I wander, I have to stop at 11. <laughs> so we have some time if there's Anyone who has comments, or additions, or uh, questions, or anything about the presentation? Please. The, uh, my understanding that you know, one of the first definitions of the Sambu were people who uh, were enlightened for various ages of enlightenment. And the theory of said is if you were pursuing the path to enlightenment, you'd want to hang out or know people who had been there. So there, mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
0: there, there'll, there have arisen a lot of different definitions of sangha, and it's sort of like the, um, you know, the Platonic ideal type. You know, we, we sort of have come to think that there really is some ideal type somewhere, but and that is certainly one understanding of sangha. But it's like, you know, what I mean about the ideal types, right? The, the right angle triangle, what you draw on a blackboard isn't... It's the, the idea, and there's this sense that it's permanent, that it's the ideal, that it really is there, you know, even though it wasn't there 10 seconds ago. Anyway, but there are a lot of definitions of Sangha, and they they, they function in different ways. Please. Uh, for those of us not present, Holly, who the ones that can Ah... The, the first phrase basically is a um, homage to the awakened, the self-awakened one. I mean, we're all working with an instruction sheet. Buddha had to do it on his own. The, the, um, the verses that are repetitive are basically buddham, saranam, gachami. I look to the Buddha for refuge. I look to the dharma for refuge. I look to the Sangha for refuge, and that's re- that phrase said is repeated three times. I, I
1: thought uh, you might be talking about the, the ceremony of seeking refuge, and how is that different from you know, just this chanting of the refuge?
0: Well, it's a different. It's different. <laughs> um, but in, in my understanding, the the... Affirming the, the Buddha Dharma and Sangha as a refuge is a is a practice. So it can be done as a large scale ritual, or it can be done as a personal kind of thing. It's like um, taking the precepts. The first time I took the precepts formally was with Thich Nhat Hanh in a large group. There were 500 people. i full prostrations. You know, we did each one, and he did a little lecture on, you know, each one, and then we Or you can just affirm the the precepts. So it's the same practice. It's just a slightly different venue, different trappings. It's all part of the the culture of, of awakening in that sense.